So I'm wondering if, if the real question should be, are we more concerned about the kingdom of self than the kingdom of God? What comes first? You know, we kind of joke that I drew the short straw and I got the easy topic of the three. Racism, same sex, abortion, materialism, that's easy. And, and the more I, I look at this, the more I realize that while the other ones are crucial in our culture today, we live within a culture of materialism. We abide to a culture of materialism. We walk in it every single day, sometimes very, very well. Other times, not so well. Well, here's the good news. The Bible has a lot to say about money. Unlike some of the other ones, there's not a lot said. In fact, there's over 2,000 verses about money in the Bible, of which we will do at least 1,900 of them today. <laughs> some key points before we get started, because I, I, I can see the looks in your faces and I get it. First of all, materialism has nothing to do with how much money you have. You don't have to be rich to be materialistic. The poor so the poor can be materialistic. It's not only the wealthy that deal with this. What you're not going to hear from me, and I want a big amen in a second, this is not a tithing and giving sermon. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> we won't be bringing that up. This is a God-centered, people-centered issue and we're right in the middle of it because we belong to this culture. And the good news is, Jesus has helped us work through it. So we're gonna run through a couple of verses. Um, if you don't already have your Bible out and your notebooks out, please get them out. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair in front of you. If there's not one on a chair, raise your hand, wave, we'll get you one. Um, I'm gonna ask you not to use your phones today. I'm gonna ask you to really hold the, the, the book in your hand. It has a little more weight. Um, but seriously, want to do that. And, and as we go through this, we're going to go kind of quick. I'm going to try to put the verses up. If you can't keep up, it's okay. It'll all be out there. It's good. So we're going to start with, with the book of Luke. And this is awesome because Jesus is talking to all these people around it. And there's, we always picture Jesus in these crowds. And within these crowds are not only just the poor and destitute, but also the rich and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the culture of the day are all mixed and listening, all with different intentions, all with different things, kind of like we do, all with different opinions. And Jesus said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Right away, Jesus is warning us that our life in no way, shape, or form is made better by possessions. That no matter what we have, it's not going to make anything better. He brings up covetedness, which I think is probably the biggest root in materialism. So much so that it made the Ten Commandments. It's like the top ten. Do not covet your neighbor's goods. It's up there at the top of the list. Of all the things in the Bible, these ten. Because when we start looking at what other people have and start comparing to what we have, we immediately start to feel that feeling in our gut. How come I don't have a 60-inch TV? How come I don't have a fancy car? Proverbs, the book of witness, wisdom tells us, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us 
with everything for our enjoyment. I know we're all spiritual here, and we don't put our hope in our things, but if God provides us everything that we need for our enjoyment, that's a neat word, enjoyment. He wants us to have pleasure. He wants us to have life. He gives us what we need, and he covers us with that. And finally, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I chose the ESV version just for the word pangs. <laughs> a pang is a sudden and piercing pain, much worse than a little IV needle. It goes to the core. And I want to point out, I know we've all heard this over and over again, money is the root of all evil. That's not true. That's not what it says. Money itself is not evil. TVs in themselves are not evil. Cars aren't evil. Pieces of paper aren't evil. The love of them is. The love of them is, is he, is he just the start? As we start moving down that path, it is, is that point when we start craving more and more and more and more because we can never have enough. We start looking for that, and our culture screams that. Our culture screams, do you have the newest model? Those aren't fashionable. That's so yesterday. Dad, are you really going to wear that? You've had that for like 50 years. They're pretty close on some of it. The question really is, is when is enough enough? When do our needs, our basic needs of life, our life to survive, our life to love, when does that need turn into a want? Where's that fine line? When, when is it enough enough just to be grateful for what we have? And we are grateful. We sit here in a little church surrounded by million-dollar mansions. We're grateful. Thank you for letting me have shoes. Thank you for letting me have more than one pair of shoes. Thank you for the clothes that we wear. Thank you for the food that we eat because that, that need is often overcome by a want. So when I was in Kansas City, I owned a little business that did senior moving and estate sales, which is an exciting business. So I help people downsize. I helped seniors move from humongous houses into one or two bedroom retirement communities. A lot of times I help families when someone passed away. Help them clean the house. Help them sell their most prized possessions. And, and it's, it was funny, I'd walk into these houses and I'd always see the sticker, not always, probably about 25% of the time, it just, he who dies with the most toys wins. And I'd be sitting there as I rummage through their junk drawer, right? <laughs> Not good, good, not good, good. And um, if you don't know, I can be just a tad bit snarky at times. Just a tad, not much. And I'd be sitting there going, he who dies, dies. He who dies with the most toys, 
dies. He who dies with the least toys, dies. 10 out of 10 is, 10 out of 10 dentists, die. No offense. And so I realize as I'm going through people's stuff, all these things they want, all these things that are so important to them don't matter. Out of all the watches I own, I only have one watch that I personally bought brand new. It's a Bugs Bunny watch and I got it in 1985 and it was the 50th anniversary. All the rest of the watches I wear are dead men's watches. And every time I look at them, I remember someday someone will have this dead man's watch. Part of this as well was that I got to work with the county and the county assessor's office, and they'd be called when people were in dangerous situations. So whenever there was a hoarder, they called me because I knew what to do and because I'm weird that way, and I liked it. <laughs> so I'd walk in these houses. This is not a hoarder's house. This is like most of your rooms. I've been to some of your houses. I've seen this room, right? And I'd walk through these houses. Some of these houses, you'd literally go through the front door, and there'd be 14 inches, and you'd work your way through, and there'd be stuff all over the place. And you go down the hall, you'd take a left, and now you're in your mind, you're thinking the hoarder show, and there's cats and bugs and old cottage cheese. Yes, that did happen. <laughs> but then there was houses that were floor to ceiling, brand new televisions, brand new DVD players, all the highest tech, furniture, everything still in a box. And I remember one lady outside with a broken hip, a broken arm screaming, I need that, you can't get rid of that. I'm like, ma'am, I can't even get you in the door. Her bed had this much room on it. It was a king-size bed, floor to ceiling. There's boxes on the other side. Now I get that most of hoarding starts because of some sort of traumatic loss. That's why you see a lot of baby boomers that are hoarders, because their parents went through the depression. So I get that. Sometimes it's just greed. Sometimes it's just selfishness. Sometimes it looks like this. Sometimes in our world, we hoard other things besides boxes. It's easy not to have a room packed full of boxes, and it's easy not to have a room packed full of kitty litter. But how many devices do we have? How many computers do we need? You know, we were talking about this, and I realized that I was planning on upgrading my phone. And so I sent out this email to all my high-tech friends, the ones that argue about what phones are better. <laughs> iPhone, Android. And I realized as I was working on this that if I had spent half as much time reaching out to them when I was in time of need in a spiritual crisis, instead of what kind of phone to buy, I'd be three steps down the road right now. Instead, I'm still dealing with some of the same stuff although I do have a brand new Pixel 3. <laughs> I'm not proud of it. <laughs> Whatever you hoard, TVs, anything, pencils, pens, shopping bags, Cheetos, Doritos, whatever it is, it pulls you away from God. It's a distraction from God. <laughs> And I know you know this, and I know I'm hitting it really hard. And I'm sorry, like, Pope, man, don't be so heavy. <laughs> but we don't see it, because it starts so young. You know, in the 1970s, they started tracking advertising to kids, because they realized real quick that if I can convince a kid to want something, they're going to bother their parents till they get it. 
right? I want that, I want that, I want that. I need that cereal. I need that evil Knievel thing that jumps. It was really cool. I need it, Dad, I gotta have it. And it grows up. And then pretty soon they go to school and they go, I don't have that toy, you don't have that toy. And then we move on. We take the next step. People start making fun of you for not having that toy. My dad was a teacher. We had five kids in our family. My mom stayed at home. I wasn't the wealthy kid in the block. I lived in a nice blue collar neighborhood. All my friends and us are the same. We got along, we all had the same stuff. We all wore our brother's shoes. That's why all my clothes are too big because when they fit, they feel tight because I'm not used to wearing clothes because the brother above me is like six foot something. <laughs> and then they shut down my elementary and I went to another school and ran face to face in kids in all the fashion. Like, what do you mean you get a pair of jeans a week? I get one at Christmas. And I started feeling bad. And they'd make fun of your clothes. And then you start getting that feeling, and you start making fun of people. And then you go to high school. I drove a 1977 Volkswagen Bug to high school. Pale yellow, full of rust, because it was Iowa. There's a lot of salt. Beautiful car. We called it the Modesty Maker. <laughs> because you couldn't be cool in this car. And my dad's like, you know, the car needs some work. I'm going to work on it. So my dad got out there and he polished off all the rust spot, put some fiberglass on it, painted sheet metal, my little landing things. The paint dried. So that was a 1977 pale yellow bug with lime green polka dots. <laughs> I didn't have a date all through high school. <laughs> and, I, and I was grateful because I had a car because the year before I had to walk to school. It was 2.8 miles, had to be three miles to ride the bus. So I'd walk to school and I'd walk home from school with my friends. So I was grateful that I could drive this awesome car that would sometimes stall. And I'd pop the trunk, take a ball peen hammer, hit it on this side if it was getting too much glass, this time if it wasn't getting enough. It was in the manual. This was me, but I, was, I had a car. Then I pull up, and you guys know this, all you teenagers know, I pull up in the lot, there's kids with Porsches, kids with brand new Jeeps, kids driving their parents' BMW. And I'm looking at them like, that's not fair. Why is that fair? And I, this constant internal battle that I had when I was 16, 17, 18 still wages on today. I'm jealous of Brian's Jeep. <laughs> Why? <laughs> right? We still do it. We're still caught up in it. And in the, in the end, in the very end, we may find that we sacrifice God for our own personal pursuits. I'm trading my wants for my needs. My need is God. My want is to be like everybody else. The most vivid demonstration of this comes from a man named Judas, who when he didn't get what he wanted, and it's very evident in Matthew, this is recorded, and he walks up to the cultural giants of the day, the leaders, the ones that set the tone and says, what will you give to me if I deliver him over to you? And he gets paid 30 pieces of silver. You're not Judas. I'm not calling you Judas. Sometimes I feel like Judas. And I started, when I was doing this, I started writing things down, like how much is a shekel worth today? How many pounds of silver? Is it 92% pure? Is it 98%? And I started doing this, and I was halfway through it, and I heard God whisper in my ear, what does it matter? How much a shekel's worth? What does it matter if I spent more time figuring out what my value is to God than what my value is to all you? 
That shekel absolutely means nothing, correct? Fair enough? Okay, heavy, right? Question time. I have a question for you guys. Simple question. Answer it honestly. Raise your hand if you're rich. You're good. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Do I raise my hand? Because society tells me I'm supposed to be rich and I'm supposed to have all these things. And then I'm in church and so I probably shouldn't say this. Right? I shouldn't say I'm rich. But right now I'm standing with the richest people in the world. If I'm very conservative and I, and I don't use my math brain, which doesn't exist, and, and I figure it out and I cheat, we're all within the top 10 percentile of the wealthiest people in the world. In this room, right now, look at your neighbor and say, dude, you are rich. Or dudette, you got everything you want. You are rich. And even where we live, the poverty that we see every day, the homeless down at Safeway, the people walking around Boulder, the people that we feed at Lamb's Lunch, pales in comparison to what you see around the world. They are in the top 50% of the rich because they get stuff. Thankfulness for what we have, right? Jesus is talking in Matthew 6. And he says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word for money, the Greek word, is mammonas. Mammonas, it's a cool word. We get mammon from it. It doesn't really mean money all the way. We always interpret it as money. It's a term that was a colloquialism used at that time, and you know, Jesus spoke in Aramaic and, and a lot of different things. It's a Semitic term, and what it really means is the treasure a person trusts in. You cannot serve God and the treasure you trust in. And I know I'm pushing this hard because I think we're so used to it that we do it blindly, that we don't even see that it's happening. We don't even see when we're walking through the store that why should I have to brand the brand name because if I bring the generic pop to the, to the Super Bowl party tonight, Marcus is going to make fun of me. Marcus wouldn't care. We've been reading this book called Counterculture. You've heard it a lot by David Platt. And this, this, this jumped out at me while I was looking through it. And it's that the entire concept of saving money so that we live life of ease and self-indulgence has no biblical foundation ever. And if you find a verse that says it's okay to get rich, build a castle, and live there and have every one of your whims taken, I would love to see it. Because the only place I know where that happens is in heaven. I'm not saying you can't save money. I'm not saying that you're supposed to go out and just throw your money away. Um, Joseph saved food and saved millions of people out of need. The Bible talks about making wise investments so that your future is secure out of need. It also says, don't build that extra barn for all your brand new cars because you don't know if you're going to be here tomorrow. It was actually grain, not cars. Don't get upset with it. It's easy for us 
to be trapped. It's easy for us to fall in this snare. It's easy for us to become the working poor. We've all done it. We still do it. We buy cars, houses, things. We rack up debt. We run our treasure cards. And then someone says, I need your help. And you're like, "Ah, I can't. I've been there. Some days I'm still there. It's easier to take all these things that we've been given and thankful for God. And and we sit at dinner and we thank you, God, for all these things. And suddenly realize we have nothing left over at the end of the month. I remember giving a homeless man a ride down in the town. We did Jesus Taxi one day, and he actually had more cash on hand than I did. I just had a job. I just already spent my money. I was going to ask him for money for gas. It was kind of funny. Um, As followers of Jesus were created in his image to be him, to be the hands and feet and the love of God. It's our God-given responsibility to help the others. Ephesians 2 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were rescued from our own poverty of our spirit, from our own despicableness to love and save God. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It was a gift. And everything that we have is a gift. The jobs that we have is a gift. We need to be grateful and understand that. And again, I'm not condemning it. I don't want you to hear condemnation coming from me. I want you to hear that, look how blessed and loved you are. And that treasure that God speaks about is not rubies and golds and yes, crowns would be cool and I already have mine designed. I get that. I love that verse. But our treasure in heaven is that God walk up and pick you up and squeeze you and say, well done, I love you, thank you. Thank you for taking care of Bob. Thank you for loving Sally. Thank you for putting up with Mark. That's like two crowns. See, there's this common theme running through all these, and it's this greatest commandment about love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And how can we say we love our neighbors ourselves when we watch them starve or struggle? How can we say we love our neighbors ourselves when we know there's something going on and, and we just don't reach out? My legs move. I can go places. We are created by God to love and help others, not out of obligation, not out of the fear of hell, but because he loved us first, and it's awesome. Matthew 19 has a story we're all very aware of. A young man watched up to Jesus. How do I get eternal life? And Jesus gives him this great list of things he's supposed to do. I've left those off. Because in the end, Jesus looks at him and said, if you to be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Free had great possessions. I'm not going to ask you to do this, 
But what if Jesus asked you to sell everything you had right now and follow him? Some of you, he may ask that at some point. Can you imagine the feeling, this young man, who I feel is probably around 51, is my guess, um, as he walked away and his heart knew that what he had was more important than following God's son? that he was choosing to give up treasure in heaven, life with God for a really nice massage chair or TV or phone or car or extra bedroom or a three-car garage or a really fancy craft brew beer. We were never intended to be a people of stuff. We were created to be a people of God. The opportunities are endless, right? There's nothing better than going to visit our friends in Juarez. And I say it, and they're going to make fun of me if they ever hear this, because I can still not say it right. Hope's Promise, Olive Branch, Haiti, all these great places we go. Miranda traveled the world practically. But it's not just that, the homeless we see every day, right? Our next door neighbor, the coworker at work that really annoys me, the racist guy that sits across me in the cubicle, and the lady and her wife. These are the people we're supposed to love. These are the people we're supposed to help no matter what it takes. Are we a generous people as Christians? Are we generous with our love, our time, our money, our finances? The world doesn't think so. And if we're gonna be part of this culture, we need to stand out as a beacon of light of hope. a beacon of light that shows what the power of God truly is and where it is. We were talking about this, and we were sitting around, and it's, it's awesome having friends you trust. Thank you both. And Brian made this point, and I really wanted to steal it and say it was mine, but Brian's here. <laughs> and we're talking, and he just, I don't know if it was off the cuff, we read it, because I think it's impossible to keep your eyes on Christ and not be generous. It's impossible to keep your eyes on Christ and not be generous. Because if our eyes are on the world, we are like the world. If our eyes are on Jesus, we are like Jesus. And one is much more fulfilling than the other. Again, no condemnation. I know it's heavy. I know it's hard. I've been dealing with it. I thought I had the easy one. But it hits here. I can't look outward. Every morning I grab my toothbrush and, and say, I'm really glad it's not a water pick out. I felt guilty today. You're empowered to love your neighbor. Do you get that? God has given you the spirit to love your neighbor. And when you do it, your heart grows. 
You're empowered to love the people next to you, and your heart grows. You're empowered to do things, and the pleasure you get for loving the people around you is far greater than any TV can give you, and I don't care what you're binge-watching. Do you remember when the families, when they came back from Juarez, they stood up on the stage and you looked at them? And their eyes and their hearts were just gleaming with God. They had taken cold showers for a week and got ding-dong ditched at every opportunity. Do you know what it's like when you talk to Mark and Beth about what they've done or Gary when he gets back? And their hearts are full. You can just see God come up into them. In a couple weeks, we get to hear from Miranda. She's going to tell you how great it was. And maybe even how hard it is to come back. And to step in this culture that traps you and holds you to its standards. And you're fighting, always struggling against it. But God has given you the power not only to fight and struggle against it, but to overcome it. And it's not just mission trips. It's not just giving. It's everything ever. You ever been in a store and walked up to someone and all of a sudden look at them and you can just feel the power of God in them? And their spirit so overwhelms you and you look at them and you want to feel guilty because you don't have what they have but at the same time that love is so strong the only thing you want to do is reach out and hold them? Do you remember that time when it was you? I remember that time it was me. When the Spirit of God was so strong in me, I didn't need anything. I didn't care about anything except serving God. And I long for that. And materialism reaches into our heart and pulls it out. So I have a challenge for you today. It's a simple challenge. Kind of. Nothing's really simple when we're dealing with hard stuff, right? So here's my challenge for you. First, I want you to start thinking, when is enough enough? When do all these things that I have Pocket full of coins. When is enough enough? And then I want you to literally fall on your face before God on the floor. And I want you to ask God, when is enough enough? I challenge you to lay there until he tells you. I challenge you to lay there and beg him to tell you what he wants you to do with your finances, your life, your love, your heart, so that you can go out and reach all these amazing people in our culture that just don't know better, that haven't gotten what we got, that don't understand how grateful and thankful we should be for the very air we breathe because God breathed it into us. And then ask him where he wants you to go. 
That's it, simple. I still think it's ironic. Today's Communion Sunday. Super Bowl? Communion. Ironic. Don't you love it when God does cool things like that? You know, Philippians has this, this great passage, and it talks about Jesus being, being God, and yet saying that we were so worth it that he gave up being God to come down here and be worthless humans like us, a bondservant, a slave. He emptied himself. humbled himself, and it says he became obedient even to death. Death on a cross. And that night when he sat in that room with his friends, knowing what was going to happen, and he knew it would be the last time he'd see them here, the love in that room must have been amazing. They didn't get it. You know he was in agony. We got a glimpse of that a little bit later as he, as he prayed. And he knew it was going to be hard, but he knew you were worth it. He knew I was worth it. He knew my kids were worth it. And he took that bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which I'm giving up for you. And whenever you eat it, you think of me. He took that cup with them and he goes, this is my blood and it's going to be spilled. But it's the blood of a new covenant, a covenant of love and life. Whenever you drink this, remember me. And yes, he wanted us to remember the sacrifice. But I think more importantly, he wanted us to remember the love he had for every single one of us. And not just the ones that believe in him, but the ones that don't the ones in our culture that don't know him or refuse to know him. So when we come today to these tables and, and we share that communion with God, we need to focus on that love because I think above all things that's the treasure of heaven. It's that unending all-powerful love of God in such a way that we can never comprehend it.